Voices are exotic dancers enter one by one. Make love to all of your orifices in your seduction. Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. In this episode entitled Genesis, we're going to lay down the first pillar of our foundational system. To do that, we're going to answer our first big question. How did everything come to be? Genesis 1. Let's start off by acknowledging that there are other ways to ask this question, like, why does anything exist? Or why is there something rather than nothing? Or what was the first cause? Or even perhaps, who created everything? That last question should stand out to you, specifically the words who and created. That's what's known as a loaded question, and sets up the person asking that question for a logical fallacy called begging the question. The person that asks the question, who created everything, is assuming that there is a who that intentionally created. This isn't the correct way to ask such questions because it implies the answer. And in order to ensure that we discover the truth of any question, we need to ensure that we are engaging in this process with an open mind. The much more honest question is a why or how question. These types of questions don't lead us in any one direction or another. It leaves the question open-ended, and it leaves us free to discover whatever evidence we can find and to follow that evidence to whatever conclusion. Now, if you are the type of person that asked who created everything, that doesn't mean you are automatically closed-minded. It may be that you have only ever heard the question asked in that way before, and that's okay. If you are going to be successful in implementing this process, you're going to have to learn how to ask the right questions and recognize when you are asking the wrong questions. You will further need to be able to identify how your question was incorrect. What are the components of the question that made it incorrect? Once you learn how to do that, you can then correct the question so that it doesn't include biases or fallacies like the one we identified earlier. Before we answer this question, there are some facts that we need to address regarding the answer. Our answer cannot be, in any way, made up or influenced by our biases. Thus, in order to ensure that we don't include any information in our answer that isn't warranted, we need to follow a few basic rules. The first rule is that you are not going to answer this question. In fact, no individual person is capable of answering this question. The answer, along with all other answers of this kind, and perhaps all answers more broadly, are answered by the culmination of multiple individuals' research into the facts of the matter. Another way to say this is that the scientific method answers this question, not any one person. By following the scientific method, dozens, or perhaps scores of people, have contributed to answering this question, and the number grows with each hypothesis posed and each round of peer review. As part of the scientific method, we will continue to probe our answers for mistakes, flaws, and further details to ensure that the answer we have is the most accurate it can be. So while some research and some individual people have contributed a great deal, think Einstein, their ideas and hypotheses have undergone and will continue to undergo an unrelenting, intense scrutiny. And this scrutiny will continue no matter how secure we become in the answer. So again, you are not going to answer this question. It is very likely that there is no thought in your head or idea or assumption, or contribution that you can or will make 
to improve upon or add to the answer to this question. But even though it is very unlikely that you will contribute to this answer, you can still participate in it. As a quick aside, if your goal is to contribute, then your best course of action is to educate yourself, pose a hypothesis, conduct the research, and submit your results for peer review. If your work passes peer review and continues to hold up to further scrutiny, then you may say that you have contributed to the answer of this question. But notice that you still have not answered it. You've just shed light on a small portion of the answer, but kudos to you. The next rule regarding answering questions like these is that the answers are literal and the conclusions stop at the evidence. Another way to say this is that Occam's razor must be utilized when answering questions. Specifically, when answering a question, we must utilize the simplest means of arriving at our conclusion, and we must never add additional conclusions that are not supported by the evidence. An example of this will likely help. Some people, when asked why they believe in the supernatural, will answer with, just look at the trees. How could those have come into existence by themselves? Something must have created them. They may continue on and say, did you know that each leaf is completely unique? How is that possible? Something must have planned it that way. I don't see how else that could have occurred. In this example, looking at trees gives us evidence for the existence of trees and nothing more. Certainly nothing supernatural. To take the evidence of the existence of trees and to conclude that there is a supernatural thing that created the trees is to violate Occam's razor and therefore to invalidate the answer. Again, trees are evidence for trees. Just because trees are amazing, varied, unique, and awe-inspiring, so much so that we are befuddled by their mere existence, doesn't support the conclusion that they must have arisen by supernatural means. Pay special attention to the phrase, I don't see how else that could have occurred. This phrase is a clue. It admits ignorance. The person claiming that trees have supernatural origins openly admits that they are astonished by trees and don't know how they came to be. They then go on to conclude, based on this gap in their understanding, that the supernatural must be the culprit. This is a textbook example of what is called the argument from ignorance fallacy. The argument from ignorance fallacy's basic structure goes like this. This thing is amazing. I don't know how this thing came to be, so I'm going to plug in an answer anyway. Once you understand this fallacy and its structure, you'll start to see it all over the place. The answers that the fallacy produces are invalid, or perhaps better said, unsound, and therefore false. And thus, we can disregard them without further consideration. Lastly, our answer must provide detailed facts, smaller components that are more easily understandable than the big question we are asking. Our answer must be in terms of things we already know or can easily understand. In other words, we cannot answer a big question like this by appealing to a bigger mystery or an, as of yet, unanswered bigger question. Furthermore, the answer needs to be given in well-defined terms that hold meaning in 3D space-time, otherwise known as reality. Again, I think an example will help. So if we ask a question that someone provides the answer, it was a ghost, immediately we know we can disregard this answer. After all, a ghost is not a well-defined term. I know the dictionary defines a ghost as an apparition of a dead person, but has that ever been verified? Has that ever been demonstrated? 
Has anyone ever conducted any tests on a ghost to give us any facts about what a ghost is or isn't? The answer to all these questions is no. Therefore, ghost isn't an answer to any question. Now, you may believe that ghosts exist, and I'm not going to demonstrate that they don't at this time. But if you are a person that believes in ghosts, then pick another poorly defined word or concept that you do not believe in and insert it into my example. So maybe you will pick for your answer because the earth is flat or because of lizard people or because of the tooth fairy. All of these share the same problem. They all lack any physical, demonstrable, and falsifiable properties. We do not know how tall a lizard person is. We cannot locate the border of a flat earth. And we do not know what type of matter a ghost is made of, and so on. So our answer must give us hard facts. Facts that we can verify and that are demonstrated to be true. Okay, so you must be yelling at the TV at this point. What is the answer? The most direct answer is the Big Bang. And if you like, you can leave it at that. Simple. Three monosyllabic words. This is the most correct answer to this question we have ever come to know. And if you like, you may answer this question with these three words and say no more. This allows for your questioner to fill in the blanks for themselves. It also has the added benefit of being 100% true. So you have not sullied your integrity and therefore your reputation in any way. If that's all you wanted to know, now you know. I suspect, though, that there are some of you that would like a more detailed answer. So here it is. About 13.7 billion years ago, a great springing forth of matter spewed out from an infinitely small, infinitely dense, and infinitely hot energy anomaly. The energy spread out in all directions and went from almost nothing to almost everything in almost no time at all. As the energy surged out into all directions simultaneously, it began to cool and to clump. And as it did, energy started to change into particles. About 380,000 years after the Big Bang, those particles finally cooled and clumped into the very first atoms, hydrogen. With this new development, the landscape of the now vast universe changed dramatically. Massive clouds of hydrogen atoms scattered throughout the coolest parts of the universe curved space-time with their gravitational attraction, an attraction that would lead to the universe's first complex object, a star. The first stars formed about 100 million years after the Big Bang. The places throughout the universe where atoms were most densely populated became the first stellar nurseries, known as nebula. These nebula gave birth to multiple stars, which then led to the first galaxies. Galaxies first formed one billion years after the Big Bang, and for a while, those galaxies were the most complex thing the universe had generated. That is, until one of those stars started to fuse the most basic element, hydrogen, into heavier and more complex elements, specifically iron. A star forms as part of a process where hydrogen first accretes into a large enough gravity well that the force of the gravity pushing into the center of the well compresses the hydrogen atoms together so tightly that they ignite into nuclear fusion. Let there be light. This fusion becomes so hot and dense in the center of the star that the hydrogen atoms fuse into heavier elements, carbon, oxygen, sodium, aluminum, sulfur, potassium, titanium, and finally, iron. When the star starts to fuse together iron, the whole process starts to break down, and the gravity of the huge mass of matter collapses and explodes. During this explosion, the heavy elements generated within are spread out into the vast expanses of space-time. It's there that they begin the process all over again. 
only this time with all the heavier elements mixed into the nebula. It was just such a mixture that coalesced into our solar system and had enough heavier elements in the correct location to create our planet, Earth. After billions of years of this process, stars forming and exploding and forming again, our planet formed around our star. It took about 9 billion years for our star and planet to form, and it took another 4.5 billion years for that, some 13.7 billion years after the Big Bang, for the universe to generate something so complex that it was able to recognize exactly what it was, humanity. We are made from the same particles those first stars were made from, and we've gotten so complex that we can conceive of our beginnings and the beginnings of the universe. We are quite literally the universe coming to know itself. Think of the last time you pondered the complexities of your lover and then leaned in for a kiss. At that moment, you were the universe thirsting for love and quenching that thirst. How wonderful. Before we move on to Genesis 2, I want to leave you with a few final thoughts on how everything came to be and our place in the universe. The first is that despite what many people might tell you, you are very special. You're not just living on an average planet, orbiting an average star in an average galaxy. And it is not just a pale blue dot. Sure, that is one way to look at our place in the universe. But there are other narratives that we can tell which hold to the facts just as securely. As far as we know, Homo sapiens are the only thing that has ever come to know the story of how the universe began and evolved into its current state. And while the size and scale of the universe is so immense that we are dwarfed by its grandeur, we can find comfort in knowing that we might be the universe's most significant intelligence. This is because we can conceive of that immensity, and our insatiable wonder transcends its seemingly limitless boundaries. Humanity knows these facts, and this knowledge makes us unique, not just average. Finally, no matter how incomplete we are in our understanding of this story, we know that this is the most correct version possible at this time, given the evidence we have discovered. There are many more facts described in the sciences of cosmology and physics, and I encourage you to look to other, more qualified communicators of this story, for they tell it with much more detail that you will likely find yourself lost in deep, mindful contemplation for the knowledge we have come to understand. Genesis 2 now, let's change gears and discuss the answer to the big question, where do we come from? Before we dive into the answer to that question, we have to get comfortable with another rule within our epistemology. This rule is a bit different in nature than the others we discussed in Genesis 1. It protects us from one of the most common mental or thinking mistakes we make. The fallacy at play doesn't have a formal name that I can find, so I'm going to call it the impossible standard fallacy. The impossible standard fallacy seems to be combining a few fallacies like false dilemma, non sequitur, red herring, and straw man. However, it is probably most closely related to the straw man. A straw man fallacy is a form of argument that has the impression of refuting the subject argument, whereas in reality, the subject argument is not addressed or refuted at all. Instead, it is replaced with a false argument. The impossible standard fallacy is slightly different than the straw man in that a completely irrelevant and often comically stupid conclusion is proposed as a standard that must be met for the subject argument to be sound and valid, and therefore correct. A fairly famous example of this was when Kurt Cameron stated on NBC Nightline during a debate that if 
evolution were to be true and transitional forms existed, otherwise known as species that demonstrate a clear transition from one type of creature to another, then we should see something called a crocoduck. He then held up a picture of a duck with a crocodile's head photoshopped onto its body. So in other words, Kerr proposed an impossible standard for the theory of evolution to meet. And then, when it didn't meet his standard, he used that as a reason to reject evolution completely. Furthermore, he did this erroneously and without any explanation of how his standard in any way related to the theory of evolution. And therein lies the straw man. A similar claim is made about the answer to the big question that we are tackling here in Genesis 2. And I will discuss it in more detail after providing the answer. But again, as a rule, we should never set up an impossible standard. The evidence will give us the standard that has to be met. And following the evidence, as opposed to leading the evidence, is the appropriate way to engage in intellectually honest inquiry. So now let's answer the question, where did we come from? The shortest, most direct answer is abiogenesis. Again, you can just leave it at that if you like. But unlike our answer in Genesis 1, the word abiogenesis often elicits a follow-up question like, huh? Or what? Abiogenesis in its simplest form is defined as life from non-life, or perhaps better said, the rising of living systems from non-living components. Interestingly, pretty much every account, be it scientific or archaic, describes some event where life came forth from non-living components. One thing to keep in mind here is that abiogenesis is not the theory of evolution and comprises a completely separate theory. Where the theory of abiogenesis describes how life arose from non-life, once life arises, the baton is passed to the theory of evolution to describe the diversity of life starting from the first abiogenetic event until modern day. Early on, when abiogenesis was just a hypothesis, there were three main elements of life that had to be accounted for. The formation of the cell wall, the formation of amino acids, and the formation of DNA. At this time, scientists have demonstrated how the cell wall, amino acids, and ribonucleotides, the building blocks to both RNA and DNA, could form spontaneously. RNA, the precursor to DNA, has also been demonstrated to spontaneously assemble from a mixture of polymers. The scientific method has demonstrated that almost every step from non-living chemical components to living cells are possible. It just hasn't demonstrated the full process from non-life to life. While there are still some gaps in understanding, i.e. there are still some components of life that the scientific method hasn't yet demonstrated to arise from natural causes and events, the overwhelming evidence suggests that the theory of abiogenesis is correct and that each step occurred by natural processes. The theory of abiogenesis isn't yet complete in every step, but the evidence gives us a very clear path starting at non-living components and ending at a living cell. One of the truly remarkable aspects of the theory is that there is still so much work to be completed. Of the scientific fields of discovery one might follow, this is one of the most exciting. Earlier, I referred to the impossible standard fallacy, and the theory of abiogenesis suffers from proponents of that fallacy. Abiogenesis often comes under scrutiny by the uneducated or the intellectually corrupt as an unsound theory because the scientific method has yet to demonstrate something like a group of scientists pour some chemicals into a dish and one month later out crawls a frog. 
While I wish I were joking about this, it's true that there are some that think this way. First off, they think that for the scientific method to be sound, it must demonstrate something miraculous. This is false. Much of what science does is to demonstrate that some basic component of a theory is possible. Scientists generate hypotheses, such as the Miller-Urey experiment, where the goal is to show that something simple, like amino acids, could form from natural processes. So they set up the experiment, often in multiple different ways, to see if their hypothesis can be demonstrated. In the case of the Miller-Urey experiment, they showed that it is indeed possible to produce amino acids in a multitude of different naturally occurring environments. Other times, science is done more dirty. In 1969, the Murchison meteorite fell to Earth in Australia. This meteorite was found to contain a multitude of amino acids, many of which were similar to the ones created in the Miller-Urey experiment. In this case, there was not a thoughtful hypothesis, organization of resources and funds, and then experimentation. The evidence for life, from non-life, literally fell from the sky. However the evidence is discovered, the point is that the scientific method has uncovered huge sections of the puzzle and answered large portions of the question, where do we come from? Another way to state the short answer to this question is that modern life sprang forth from non-living elemental components through a series of natural processes. I'd like to leave you with one last thought. While science has demonstrated that all the basic building blocks of life arose from natural causes, and that those building blocks are very simple in their origins, and that they follow very basic laws of physics and chemistry, this in no way diminishes the intense and layered experience of the universe's most enlightened creature, you. The scientific method demonstrates to us that we don't need a miracle to be as profoundly thoughtful as we are. We just need simple physical laws, exploding stars, planetary accretion disks, and a simple stew of basic atoms and chemicals continually hydrating, drying, and exposed to radiation on top of the right kind of clay. Simple. So simple, in fact, that regular, ordinary people can simulate just such an environment in a lab and naturally produce the building blocks of life in a week's time. Take a moment to let that sink in. Billions of years ago, on a still-forming, chaotic planet, pools of water washed up onto clay-infused land. Water clouded with chemical mixtures spewing forth from underwater vents, fueled by molten magma. The sun irradiated that chemical-laden water, while its heat evaporated the water away slowly. Once dry, the chemical concoction distilled into ever more potent amalgamations. Either a new splash of water would rehydrate the pool, or rain would fall and the pool's chemical mixture would be refreshed and changed. Again, the sun's rays would beat down, adding necessary energy into the water and its chemicals. The Miller-Urey experiment produced amino acids in just a week's time. Imagine this process occurring all over the world for millions of years. Trillions upon trillions of experiments happening all at once each one producing all the building blocks of life with each passing week. All the while, the Earth's crust is cracking open, spewing forth lava, and resealing itself anew, adding more and more chemical mixtures to the water. Lightning strikes pools of water as clouds pass by, dropping rain and gusting winds. With so much mixing and mashing and spewing and bashing, over hundreds of millions of years, it's no wonder something living didn't spring forth sooner. 
perhaps it did, and found itself in such inhospitable surroundings that it went extinct before it could evolve. But the process kept on, and the environment calmed, probably only very slightly at first, but something, one cell, was able to form, and that formation turned out to be an advantage. And life has been pressing that advantage ever since. Those cells gave rise to the 86 billion cells that comprise your brain. Brain cells that vividly pictured that ancient world I just described. You are brilliant, and your brain cells have evolved to make you that way. In the next episode, Exodus, we will tackle the question, who or what are we? Thank you very much, and this has been Ear Seduction.